Welcome, everybody. Steven's on the show. We're going live here on YouTube, and uh, we're bringing you the COVID misinformation. We're digging into the data. We're going to expose the lies. Last time, we talked about how there's no greater increase in the risk of death between 2015 and 2020. So for all the, hey, we've got a pandemic on our hands, if you just look at the numbers, there's no greater increase in the risk of death. death. And we dipped into um, the fact that there's good reason to suggest that the mutations are a, a, a result and will be made worse by the vaccines. The vaccines cannot prevent you from the mutations. They're not built for that. And they also are being sold on the um, relative risk reduction and not the absolute risk reduction. So that's the quick summary. You guys can go check out the first series over there. And now we're going to start dipping into some real numbers. Steven's got a presentation from us. And uh, of course, I'm going to interrupt with stupidity as we go. So this is you, bud. Excellent. Yeah, again, thanks again, guys. So uh, just summarizing really briefly what we covered in the last presentation, we are looking at COVID-19 deaths per age group. This isn't your risk of dying or getting COVID. This is actually of the people that died, what was their age? And this is important to me because if I'm comparing um, a new disease that potentially affects, let's say, you know, 25-year-olds, I would expect to see that the percentage of 25-year-olds that are dying from COVID compared to other age groups is more than the rate of 25-year-olds that are dying normally. And so what we can see by uh, this graph really quick, on the left here is the age distribution of deaths. So again, of 100 people that died, um, this graph right here shows about 76 are going to be over the age of 65, and then so on and so forth. And so what this graph tells me is that the yellow bar on the left is COVID. The right bar in the middle is the total deaths per age group in 2015. And this blue bar on the far right is the total deaths per age group in 2020. And as you can see, these numbers are virtually uh, minuscule for the younger generation and ramps up equally as we get to 65 plus. And the conclusion that I take away from this is that COVID doesn't preferentially affect certain age groups under the age of 65. And the reason I'm saying this is because as you can see, this yellow bar is significantly higher than this blue bar over here, which tells me that just for this 65 year old plus population, COVID-19 is actually preferentially hurting and killing these people more than other diseases. And all this graph is, I'll, I'll leave this in the slide for people to check out later. This actually breaks down that same graph by specific diseases. And what this tells me is that the distribution of age that COVID's killing. So is just, just, just to put like a, a an evil spin on it, if we were standing in, if we were standing in front of death himself, like in Family Guy, sometimes you they play had the character played by Norm McDonald and he's holding the thing. So it, as death comes for sixty five and older, it's just COVID's the new tool for killing them. But it's not something. It's not like death. Death didn't change who it was showing up to kill. It just changed the tool by which it was going to use it. It's got like a new chainsaw. You know, it used to just show up and would weed whack people to death or something. Now it's got a fancy chainsaw. So, it, it, you know, it's chainsawing them, but it's not going after new people. Right, right. And, and um, you, precisely. And that would show up in this data. And that kind of shows up again, right, in the 65 year plus category because we see the bar a little bit higher. But again, that's only for the 65 year old plus category that death is seemingly showing up a little bit more than it would normally for other diseases, which is interesting. And, and, and yeah, the, and that puts it uh, perfectly. This just distributes it for other diseases. It's very similar for heart, heart disease, diabetes, 
uh, cancer, all of these rates uh, ramp up similarly as your age grows, as, as in terms of the percent of uh, people dying per age group. So essentially your risk at certain ages is the same uh, between these diseases. But what's really funny, and Rob pointed this out last time, is that your risk of accidental deaths that is the one bar here that shows um, uh, a drastic increase in the 25 to 44 year olds, because as Rob put, they're dumbasses, right? Um, you, you articulated this better than I did. Well, it's all good because I, I think if people want really the particulars. Yeah. We definitely got in on the last one. Right. I just think the important takeaway is going to be that um, as they try and lock us down or force us to get vaccinated, let's just establish how much of a plague are we dealing with? Like, right. if is this really an epidemic on all of humanity? Uh, and if you're looking at just overall death numbers, it would suggest that, well, no, it's not that anything's really changed. Um, death is just using a new tool when it shows up to collect some souls. And, and let me be more pointed. The reason I did this is because we're talking about putting masks on kids and mandating vaccines for fucking kids. Excuse me, am I allowed to swear? I'm yeah, of course, okay. please. Um, uh, kids in, in college and in the military, right? Okay, what are military age? Let's go 15 to 24 years. Can you even see the percent of people that are dying from COVID in this age group? No, because they're, they're right. They're if anything, dying. you're going to stress them out more and they're going to do more dumb shit and you're which, going to end up increasing the dumb shit category. Which is the accidents precisely. And and, and that's the point. And, and, and that's what this data shows. And so um, here are some actual numbers too. Down here is a per year graph or per, per year table of the amount of people COVID-19 is actually killing. So in the year 2015, 2.7 million people died total. In the year 2020, 3.4 million people died total. That's all you can say about it. That, that doesn't control for anything. It could just be population, right? But those are just the total numbers. And that's why we're dealing with percents. So then when we come down here, we can actually see the COVID-19 deaths per year for ages, let's go five to 14. I believe that looks like a, a so study. wait, I just have to ask on that total yeah. figure. Doesn't that somewhat contradict what we were saying that there is no greater uh, risk of death? Cause it does sound like more people died in 2020 than in 2015. Right. But we're looking at percentages. So we're looking at the percent of people that died by age category. So that actually controls for the actual number of people. So, oh, so in other words, there's more people over the age of 65 now so there will be more deaths because older people die more. Is that what you're saying? This this is just your dis this is the age distribution. So this is per the amount of people dying. However many people died doesn't matter. Right. This is the percent of, of breakdown of that. Oh, so no, uh, so it's just telling me that when people are dying, uh, it's still mostly people over the age of 65, but the actual numbers of death have increased. So there's more 65-year-olds dying in 2020 than died in 2015. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but with COVID, I would say that's a fair estimate. And we could go through the data. I just haven't crunched those numbers in that way, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, but but again, what we're looking at here is uh, percentage-wise, right? And so um, that controls for the, the total. So we're looking at, like, of those, uh, of those 3 million or 2.7 million people that died, what percent of them died of, of this of this disease versus this disease versus this disease at specific age groups? Okay, so but just because uh, I want to make sure that we're being accurate. I was running around, you know, saying I got this great stat on my hands. I thought from looking at it the last time, we were kind of seeing that it looked like COVID just borrowed other deaths. Like yes, the flu deaths were down. Graph. That's oh, okay. Graph. Sorry. Yep. 
but if overall if overall death is up then there must be some sort of an increase in terms of your personal risk of death as a result of covid no not not necessarily there could just be more people in the united states you mean that the, the the population is greater of people that would normally die which is people over the age of 65 no 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 it, it it's just it, the, the the function is just a total number so like of, oh okay of i got people, you i got like, you like of the people that showed up in a hospital and croaked you know right the count right they don't even have to be americans bro you see what i'm saying it's just the right total okay i got you yeah so, so and that's why i'm using percentages to kind of make that irrelevant does that make sense yes excellent thank you thanks for pointing that out though and that's very important because you know what you know what you say is very important and the last thing i want to do is give someone the wrong idea of the data yeah and 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 so actually but to your other part where we're making the argument about borrowing from the flu deaths that's absolutely true and so that's where we're going into this this is the last part summarizing our last conversation so so this is assessing covid-19 and other disease deaths per total deaths and so, and so here's a chart you can check out again later. These are the actual numbers. So for instance, uh, ages one to four, 27 deaths of COVID-19 versus 41 influenza. Ages 15 to 24, only 663 COVID-19 deaths per year versus 56 influenza deaths. And then you have the total deaths over here too. So anyone uh, can look at those later. And uh, here's just a pie chart of the breakdown of those leading causes of death from 2015. And so this is to your point, Rob, that you did point out. And this is what's really interesting me. Um, and again, uh, these numbers need to be crunched more for an extremely conclusive statement, but this is evidence enough to start the study and start the crunching. So this is a graph of showing of those people that died. So of the 2.7 in 2015 and the 3.3 in 2020, what percent of those people died from these diseases? And so right here on the left, we're going to have COVID-19 deaths per total deaths in 2020. And, you know, this is a shocking number. Let's admit that, you know, this, this is about 12% of deaths for the population over the age of 65 are attributed to COVID. But on the other side, you can say, okay, um, you know, how many of those deaths were actually COVID versus other things? And you've gotten into that in your podcast before. But, but back to this graph and the final point is that what's interesting here is you can compare the percent of deaths for the flu in 2020 right here to the percent of flu deaths per total deaths in 2015. And you can see at every age category, there are less percents of flu deaths per total than there were five years ago. And that's just one indication. That and that's, COVID, and every, I mean, every single bar for 2015 is greater. Right, right. Every single bar, every single age category. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, which means that some of the deaths that are attributed to COVID-19 are heart disease, flu, and otherwise. Now, to be just fair and grim, it could be that we're dealing with people that might have lived an extra six, seven, eight, nine, ten months. But the question becomes, hey... I, I mean, it, this is a grim conversation, but it's like conversation that you need to have if you want to start having like, you know, putting this into rational terms. But someone's the last 10 months of their life, if they're like if they're if someone's losing the last 10 months of their life, is that worth saying that we have a pandemic on our hands, shutting down countries? And, you know, I, I we all kind of know what we're up against here and how crazy it is. But the point is, it's not like there's one death. 
to say right. there's widespread debt, that is inaccurate. It, the more accurate claim would be we have a lot of people that would have been dying in the last in the next eight to 10 months that are dying 10 months sooner than they otherwise would have. Also, I'll just point out, I think if you were to ask any old person as like a 30 year old when they're making good decisions, hey, your last 10 months of your life, would you rather have 10 months or three months where you can spend the time with your family? Three months where you're not having to wear a mask. Three months that are, would you rather your last three months be three regular months or 10 months of sitting inside your house alone where you can't see anybody? What would be your preference? Who's picking the 10? I'm saying if you take the people that are actually died of COVID that were in that category, who's right. picking the 10 over the three? No one. Isolated in the hospital. Right. Absolutely right. When, when they don't even know it's right. And, and by the way, it's hard to crunch the numbers on how many people, um, deteriorated worse or will deteriorate deteriorate worse, which I've seen with my own grandparents because this has been a rough year when you couldn't do anything. So it's like to even just look at that and go like, I mean, that, that becomes the cost benefit again of just being open versus closed. Um, I am noticing we seem to be getting a little bit of the uh, feedback again. Uh, were you able to get the headphones in or that just didn't? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, how, how about now? Any better? No, no, I don't think it's a, um, Oh, actually. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I think it was actually placement of the phone. So if you don't mind, I'll just keep it here. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, cool. works for me. Hell yeah. All right, sweet. Excellent, guys. All right. And um, so I might be looking this way, but I'll still keep the video here. All right. Um, so so, so I think everything you just said was a really uh, a brilliant and rational point. And, and it also uh, really goes to, you know, we can't really prove this, right? The numbers are really fuddled. You know, they're, it's very muddy. Um. You know, it would be very hard to uh, to definitively prove this, but that's definitely what the evidence suggests. And um, here again, I just put this in for people to look at on their own time. This is, again, a zoom up of the breakdown of COVID-19 deaths per total deaths um, and per age group. And then this is also of the people that died of COVID, what percent are in those age groups? And so now we're getting into kind of the new part. And this is something All right, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that Rob had me, I think it's a nice transition. So um, I think it's important just to put in stone, you know, how are we being manipulated at the very, uh, the, the fruit from the poison tree argument? And a quick example, I'm the only researcher in a lab and I'm supposed to count the amount of cells that got infected by a virus. And if my control or if my experimental well and all the cells got infected by a virus, but I know they're not supposed to, I might in my lab notebook write down three instead of 30. And then as soon as I throw out that, you know, the, the, the raw data and have my lab notebook three instead of 30, that's there for all the studies. And that means every study that uses that data point needs to be thrown out. It's fruit from the poison tree. So, so getting back to calculating death rate for a population, um, uh, the death rate for a disease um, ideally is the people confirmed to have had the disease in their system. And, and in their system is in quotations because we can talk about that. And that's divided by the people that died from that disease where the death is attributed, attributed to the disease in a practical manner. And that's also really important. So just to explain, if a guy goes into, oh, I mean, we can get really silly with this. Let's say a guy gets run over by a car and he dies on impact or he doesn't die on impact. He gets hit by a car and they bring him to the hospital. His lungs are collapsing. His heart's exploding. He's bleeding out. And then he dies on the hospital bed. They test him and he had COVID and they go, this guy died of COVID. Now that's a really silly example, but you can have people in hospitals that, cause they've done this where kids were in a hospital cause they broke their leg and they were administering a COVID test. And all of a sudden this was a COVID hospital admittance. 
It wasn't that there was a person with a broken leg who happened to have COVID. It affected the childhood stats of how many children were um, considered to be hospitalized because they technically had COVID. So we know just in terms of um, what you're saying, fruit from the, like the, the poison tree, we know that there are going to be problems with the um, statistical information. One right. major issue is that for the first couple months of COVID, we weren't testing. So we don't even know infection to hospitalization rate because we couldn't know that. And we definitely don't know infection to death rate because we don't know how many people were ever infected. Right. So it could be that the death and serious illness stats are minuscule compared to how many people have actually had it. Then the other part of the information that you're saying is um, we know there's an issue with is an overestimation of COVID deaths because people died of something else and it was declared COVID. Right. Silly example being a person hit by a car. Right. Exactly. Precisely. And, and, and like you said, um, that kind of uh, incentives, right? Pharmaceutical company incentives, higher positivity rate, hospital incentives. There were stories about hospitals receiving extra aid or extra recognition depending on their COVID uh, flux, if you will, uh, back in the beginning. So um, it's just very skeptical with both of these numbers. And to your point about testing people, you can't retroactively test people um, for COVID, you know, not everyone's going to have antibodies and not everyone's antibodies are going to be around for, you know, more than two or three months. Uh, just to give you like some idea, I actually used to work for a company where we would inject rabbits with little peptides like the spike protein. And then I would actually receive their blood at weeks four, five, six, seven, and eight. And then I would actually do test to test, you know, where we get the highest titer and specificity of antibodies from the rabbit's blood. Right. But, but you only are you killing rabbits, Steven. Uh, uh, technically, that was a different. Uh, I declined to comment. Okay, sure thing. Yeah, sorry, but, I didn't mean but, to derail you. Yeah, the, the the point is like antibodies go away, and everyone knows that, right? So so there's no way to tell if someone really got COVID um, uh, in an ethical way. Um, but yeah, so so that really covers kind of the fruit from the poison tree and calculating the death rate. And and here we're. Well, I think I just because I think we skipped over it, and it is a. Uh, Oh, I, I just see, well, I guess it has an honorable mention that we'll get to later, oh, uh, but yeah. people have pointed out that we've shifted the standards by which PCRs can determine that you have COVID, and we'll get into this later, um, but people that either are purposely not using the proper standards or don't know how to administer a PCR test, uh, it would be clear to us that we have not made our data set of COVID cases we know for sure is not 100% accurate right. because we know that the PCR testing, even though if PCR testing is an accurate tool, I guess it's only as good as the way it's being administered. And we are out there. And then we also know that um, I believe they've changed the levels by which uh, you would make a COVID determination, which just to throw a wild conspiracy theory out there or to let you know what that means Let's say the PCR test, and I don't know, you'll have to explain the mechanics, and then we, you know, we'll come back to this. But let's just say there's a level of antigen of 30, and if you're at 30, it's considered that you have COVID, right? Um, now, let's say that a vaccine comes out, and we want to pretend like, hey, there's less COVID in the world. So if you change the standard on the test, that you have to hit a higher number to get COVID. So part of the reason why you'd have less COVID is because you changed the standards on the test, not because of some other vaccine or something working. Now, I'm not saying that that is what happened. Cool. I'm just letting you know that these are the parameters by which um, fluctuations in PCR testing could greatly change the data set by which anyone could be working with or reviewing. And as you said, 
once the data sets ruined, there's really not a whole lot you can do to revisit it. Um, and that's that's something that we're going to be getting to a little bit later. Yeah, and actually, uh, this is a good time to get kind of in in those specifics, and and I, and I think um, we could maybe do like a whole PCR episode later. But, but just on that point, not only when you increase the cycle threshold, do you, or decrease the cycle threshold, um, do you lower the, the detection rate, or when you increase the cycle threshold, you lower the detection rate because you're you're cycling and amplifying the DNA more. Not only that, but when you do increase the cycle threshold, you're increasing the amount of false positives uh, exponentially within each increase in cycle threshold number. So for doing this type of PCR reaction where you actually want to quantify, it's called RT-PCR. It just stands for like real-time PCR. So it's actually quantifying the amount of genetic material. And this is important what we'll talk about later. And so the key with the PCR reaction is it's just a reaction that you design that will amplify a certain stretch of genetic material. And in this case, it's going to be the COVID-19's genetic material. And for each uh, cycle that we amplify the DNA, the DNA will split into two and double. And so it doesn't just go from like two to four uh, to, to six. It actually goes exponentially. So on the first cycle, you get two, then you put two strands. And this is if your genetic target is uh, multiplying. So you put it in the PCR machine and it will do cycle threshold numbers of temperature um, uh, changes. And by doing this with an enzyme, it will actually amplify the genetic material of COVID if it's there. And that's important, if it's there. And so if it's there, the, the genetic material of COVID will keep amplifying the more cycle thresholds you do. So and just so, to put it into dumbass terms, yeah, you could have someone in the hospital for anything and potentially they could have COVID within their system, but it's like literally a non-factor because either they're antibodies or something else. Like, it, it, yeah. I'm sorry to jump on you there, but I, there's just so much uh, to, to put this into context. So the PCR machine is not a, our PCR test is not a diagnostic test for viruses. And this is very important. So like I said, the PCR machine only picks up genetic material. You can think of this genetic material as a skeleton of the virus. Not only that, but just because you're finding little bits, little segments of this DNA or RNA from COVID, it doesn't mean that you have active infectious viral particles. It, does, it doesn't even come anywhere close to meaning that you're spreading a virus in, uh, actively. So this is akin, a good analogy might be like uh, digging through the desert and finding like a woolly mammoth bone. And being and being like, oh, dude, the woolly mammoths are coming. Like, we gotta, we gotta buy, we gotta get guns. When, when it was like, dude, the, this shit has been fossilized for a uh, hundred. Oh, yeah, so in other words, the PCR test. It, it, this is a little bit different from death death rates. The PCR test is a bad indication of the fact of whether or not you're infectious. So the idea that you're going to get a PCR test and then go, oh, I'm currently infectious. I have to stay home. It could be as a theoretical. Um, you've got a cold right now, which is why you have a runny nose and you had Corona through a month ago. And since the PCR test is amplifying, um, the, the skeletal remains of that, you think that you currently have Corona and that's totally not why you have a runny nose right now. Which is dependent on the cycle threshold number. The, the okay. higher you crank that, the more likely you get false positives and 
And and even even uh, when PCR false positive is kind of a, a hard way to put it because it might the DNA that you're using as your primers they called primers to go after that DNA stretch that you want to amplify they might actually be finding little stretches right and just to give you some numbers these primers are about 20 nucleotides nucleotides are like A G C's and T's and they're going to amplify a stretch of anywhere from 500 to a thousand nucleotides. And, and so this is, these are very small segments of DNA or, or technically RNA in the case of COVID. But the point is that you just need a fraction of the COVID genome uh, dangling around in the wind or, and, and for it to stick to the inside of your nose and for you to crank the cycle threshold up, boom, you're positive. And, uh, and yeah. can I ask, so, and they have made changes to the PCR like thresholds, like that's not what we're, so can you, can you explain to us some of the changes that have been made, like, I guess, through this whole Corona run? Right. Um, I, to be honest, I haven't had the time to look into that specifically and really dig down and then to cross-reference, but I will just speak generally, um, cycle thresholds, especially over cycle threshold numbers important when you're looking at uh, gene analysis. Um, usually we use this type of test to say, okay, I have a bunch of cells in the dish. I'm going to put a lot of protein on them. And then I want to see which genes uh, they upregulate. So then you take those cells and you put it in this test and you have a cycle threshold number of anywhere from maybe like 10 to 20. And then you can see, oh, look, this gene is higher than this gene um, when I treated it with protein versus not. And like, oh, cool. But what, what's the problem here is that when you start getting into the 30s, you start seeing these uh, just nonspecific binding and positive tests. And it's just uh, really troublesome. Okay, so just uh, I, I guess put that into simple terms. So you as a expert kind of in the, the, these PCRs and ABCDs and things I don't understand, you would you are, what you're saying is that the threshold by which of amplification they were using on the PCRs was a bad metric because it's going to amplify predictively predictably a lot of false negatives, which means that no matter what, we just have a bad data set here because we know that the threshold that you're using is going to create too many it's, false negatives. It's artificially high. It, it's kind of right. It, 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 it's not like, oh, boom, we got you red handed. But it's like, right. yo, dude, that's like you're cranking that dial a little freaking high. And so um, and two problems with that. One, you're going to have more death cases being declared um, Corona yes. because there was no relevant Corona there, but it was amplified by the machine to come up as being Corona. And then everyone also, in the hospital is testing positive, bro. If someone coughs in the hospital, there's probably going to be tons of PCR positives, right? Okay. But, uh, okay, I, I, fine. And then on the same note, you will also have um, a lot of indication of the fact that people need to, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, stay home or that we got to separate people or that there's massive waves and uh, that the PCR would actually not be a good indicator for the fact that there's something super contagious happening. But- but the antigen test absolutely is. And okay, interesting. Guess, and, and guess which one is very cheap, has decades of research, and has been used every day by women all the time. It's, it's, uh, the it's, thing. Yeah, the second the, one. The dude. thing. Not what the, the thing they pee on for pregnancies? Yes, exactly, dude. That's an antigen test. And, and oh, and, so we could all be peeing onto sticks, dude. It would just stick in the stick in the back of our uh, nose. Yeah. Or spitting on it, yeah. 
Okay, but don't they have the Novax uh, antigen test, which I heard was not as accurate as the PCR? But you're saying it yes. might be. No, no, no. This is this is yes, 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 dude. You're you're getting so excited right now. Okay, that this is a brilliant point. So because the PCR test is so specific and so and so non-correlated to infectious virus particles and infection, you actually want a test that's less specific like the antigen test, because the antigen test will only show positive if the virus is replicating and you have enough of the viral-like particles. So the antigen test, another word for uh, antigen in this context is protein. You can think of it as the spike protein or even the capsid protein. So the antigen test just tests the amount of spike protein, which is a lot harder to detect than that PCR reaction because that takes a lab and, and kind of special equipment. But this, this uh, antigen test, it only works if you have enough of the protein in your system and in that sample to test positive, which is actually lucrative and in our favor if we actually want to identify people that just have transient like skeleton versus are infectious. Okay. So just to get us uh, slightly back on track here and let anyone who's, uh, we're going to go real radio. New people have tuned in, so I'll let them know <laughs> cool. what's going on here. So we've recapped that um, it, on percentage terms, there's no increase in the risk of death. There's no giant plague. The people that are dying, it seems like they would have been uh, probably soon to pass anyways. And we also know that we're dealing with faulty data in trying to analyze like, okay, firstly, there's not an epidemic. Second is if you're trying to pretend like there's an epidemic, it's hard to even establish that because we know that the data set that they're using is faulty. It's faulty because we know that they've declared people that died from other causes as being uh, Corona deaths. And then we even know in terms of trying to establish that these faulty deaths were even Corona, they were using the PCR mechanism, which uh, by your estimation is going to create a lot of false positives. So now let's look at more reasons um, why we shouldn't like what is what is it that you'd be trying to prevent against if you were getting the vaccine and so we're going to look at a little bit more of that it's not really anything that we should be this unbelievably concerned about and i just want to preface this with this is shocking um this is a preprint but i it's it's actually um yeah, I, I, don't, I actually don't mean to get emotional, so I guess we'll just talk about it. But this is really scary stuff, um, if it's true. Um, so, so this is the actual data from the Pfizer vaccine trial. And this was done with 44,000 people in a double-blind control study. What it means is they, they gave half the people the Pfizer vax and half not, and they followed them. And essentially, they broke down the numbers here for us. And this is from the actual paper. So... The percent of deaths from COVID from the people that were unvaccinated uh, were 14 people died of COVID, and out of out of uh, 21 out of basically 22,000 people, of the people that were vaccinated, 12, 15 people died of COVID. So just right here, one more person <laughs> in the vaccinated trial group of Pfizer died of COVID than the unvaccinated, uh, and that's seen right here. All right. So now what we're dipping into just to, to set this up, because this yeah. is such unbelievable. Just fuckery that it's unbelievable. So we've got this thing that they're telling us, hey, there's an epidemic out there. Everybody's going to die. And then they try and tell you, listen, the only way that you're going to be able to survive this is if you get a vaccine and everyone has to get this vaccine. And so they get it first emergency authorization. And then in a minute, we're going to break down the full authorization. But in their own study, 
while they claim that this is the thing that's going to save your life, if, I mean, you, you understand studies better than I do, more people died that took this than didn't. And then also for the any serious uh, adverse events, so there are actually still more adverse events amongst the people that were vaccinated than the people that were unvaccinated. Now, best case scenario, best case scenario is you can say, hey, this wasn't a great study and the vaccines do have utility. Less people are getting the virus and less people. But if it's a bad study, how do you go to market with it? And if the study very clearly displays the fact that not only is there not a, a substantial increase in benefit to you, but not even a proof of any benefit whatsoever. None. How can you create a mandate around this? We're, we're, we're like, uh, this is their fucking trial. I mean, you're on the news every day telling us safe and effective. Where's the evidence? This is your trial. I mean, as far as you and I understand, we got this from a dude on Twitter and we validated, I guess, that this is actually from their trial study. And well, I know yeah, that we're- I got the picture from the actual, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I, then please, Pfizer, YouTube, if you censor us, any politician, anyone in the world, Please explain yeah. to us why this thing is so important to get when by their own trial data, there is no increase in, pre in prevention against uh, severe um, health effects from corona or death. Just explain it to us. I, I'm putting the question out there. I'm saying, I don't know. I don't know what chart I'm looking at. I don't know if Steven's even a real scientist. I have no fucking clue. So I'm putting this out there. And if you're listening, you can email me, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. Anyone in the world who wants to come on to the Run Your Mouth podcast and explain to us this chart and why this this vaccine is helpful, please hit me up, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. I mean, and, and something I didn't get a chance to answer your question last time we talked was, what is your risk of death waking up in the morning average for everyone of getting and dying from COVID? Well, according to this Pfizer study, if you got the placebo, so you were unvaccinated, your, ch your chance of... Uh, of dying or uh, risk of death from COVID is 0.0638%. And if you're vaccinated, your chance is 0.0684%. So again, slightly higher if you're vaccinated. But again, it's such a low number, you can't be significantly, um, that, that's what this significant graph over here is saying. So because these numbers are, are so small in the context of the N, which is 22,000, you can actually do, uh, you know, uh, statistical intervals of 95% cost confidence. And this is how in every scientific study for hundred decades, it, it's showing that something is actually different. You need to prove that something is statistically significant. That means beyond a 95% chance of being random that this is actual trend, that this is an actual data point. And so, so this, yeah, yeah, no, no, continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, yeah, no. And so with this graph over here, it's important and showing a P value again for anyone that's into statistics. The P value is, is the other side of the confidence interval. So it tells you how confident you are of, of this difference and what you can claim. So, uh, again, I'll just start with the right side with deaths. So, again, we talked the, the red on the right is placebo versus the vax. Again, one less person died of the vaccine, so of course you can't make a significant argument there. Over here, we're talking about hospitalizations. Um, 116 for the for the unvax versus 127 for the vax. So more people were hospitalized with the. Um, again, like I might get into a lot of trouble if this isn't right. It feels dirty to me that we're saying this, but I'm going to continue on because it um, just seems like this can't be true. It just seems like 
you look at the reaction to, and by the way, so Pfizer's at least on paper, currently the best of all of them, right? It's the one that they first to get the full approval. Um, and they're telling you safe and effective. And the only way out of this thing is for everybody to get this. And then you look at their own case study. And I guess they weren't even good enough at lying or fabricating better evidence that according to them, right? there's no greater increase in protection against death or hospitalization. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to read the piece from the actual FDA approval. Oh, I actually have that. Um, can I kind of, right. Yeah. Um, okay, fine. I, I'm going to read this because, uh, I, I want to point out two things. Actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to share from my doc yeah, because I think it's the same paragraph, but, um, just give me one second here, everybody. Oh, whoops, I didn't mean to remove you completely. Give me one sec. Sorry, there you are. And then let me add this to the stream. Okay. Okay, so what we just read to you was what we believe to be the actual Pfizer studies, right? And the um, whether or not it's actually preventing you from uh, death or uh, going to the hospital. So now this is from... Uh, this is from the actual document, the government document, and I'll show it to you. I didn't just pull this from nowhere, so I'm going to read it. And I'm going to point out a couple really incredible things. For the December 11, 2020 authorization for individuals 16 of age and older, FDA reviewed safety and um, efficacy data from an ongoing phase one, two, three trial and approximately four, um, 44,000 participants randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive Pfizer, Biotech, COVID-19 vaccine or saline control. The trial has enrolled participants 12 years of age and older. FDA's review at the time considered the safety and effectiveness data as they relate to the request for emergency use authorization in individuals 16 years of age and older. All right. Thus far, nothing too interesting. We're about to come to the fun part. FDA's review of the data of safety data from 37,586 of the participants 16 years of age and older who were followed for a median of two months after receiving the, the second dose did not identify specific safety concerns that would preclude issuance of the EUA. FDA's analysis of the availability, um, at, that the word is efficacy, right? Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Well, okay, well, no, no, but I want to, I want to get to this one yeah. piece because I think it really puts the nail in the coffin about what we just showed you guys. So FDA's analysis of the efficacy data, FDA uh, from thirty six thousand five hundred and twenty three uh, participants, twelve years of age and older, without evidence of SARS CoV two prior to infection, seven days after dose, confirmed the vaccine was ninety five percent effective. Here becomes the fun part, everybody. Ninety five um, percent credible interval uh, in preventing COVID nineteen occurring cases. Second, all right, I, you know, I could have I could have skipped a lot of this. So here comes the fun part. I've been I've been teasing it, and here it comes. Um, so you had eight COVID-19 cases in the vaccine group compared with 162 COVID-19 cases in the placebo group. Now here's the really fun part. So first is eight versus 162. That sounds like, oh my God, this thing's really working. However, are we really concerned about 162 out of 22,000 people getting sick? And then why isn't it telling me about what happened to these people once they got sick, Right. And so firstly, I think that this th this trial data must be different than what we just saw because right. the actual level of death. So this must be a different trial that was run. But so in this trial, they're just telling us that, you know, 
162 people came down with COVID-19. So firstly, I don't know that we need to be concerned with 162 people coming down with COVID-19. Also, people getting the disease, which they're not even tracking for anymore, is really not that big of a concern. The problem is what happens once you get the disease. So why is it then in this paper, if they've got good evidence of that, they're not even they're not even telling us, which would seem to suggest because they don't have good evidence about the actual hospitalizations and death. And 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 I do want to make this point clear. This is something that I was a little confused about too. So this study that we just viewed, this is considered a, a preprint um, from what I could gather. So that, that means it's not officially published, um, but it's still a it's still a clinical trial that has a that has a that has a. Uh, well, we'll link it. In, we'll link it into the notes. People can right. tell us if or what we're getting wrong. Right. But just in case you thought, hey, you guys are pulling random documents this doesn't make any sense. You know what? I'm not good with math, science, and numbers, but I am kind of good with language. And let me read this next sentence to everybody because this is insanity. Based on these data and review of manufacturing information regarding product quality and consistency, FDA concluded that it is reasonable to believe that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may be effective. Right. It is reasonable to believe that it may be effective. That's a lot different than safe and effective. It's significantly different than, hey, if you don't get this thing, you're not allowed to go into a store. In their own document, they're willing to go as far as that it is reasonable to believe, not even like we're making a firm conclusion based on the evidence. It's reasonable to believe that it might be effective. Maybe they're just really bad writers, or maybe the lawyers at the FDA really don't like liability, but that's a lot different than the way that this thing's being pitched. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, so that was one that this is the data from the trial that we covered last time, where it was, uh, it was actually only 36,000 participants versus this one, which is 44,000. Um, so I think they're, they're actually two different studies. And so, um, so I, I think that's also really interesting. It would be interesting to see which ones were used in the EUA, although this one says this was used in there, but we can discuss that later. But this is the actual study numbers. And um, yeah, and if you actually okay. want to throw it and back, then just I, to, or sorry, yeah, just a couple things about what you just said, though. <laughs> yeah, they pretty much said. So we injected people with two jabs of this. We followed them for a median of two months, maybe three to four months at most, because that's literally the time on the study. No one died, so it's got to be safe, right? Two. Um, did it did does, can it maybe help like theoretically kind of with COVID? Yeah. So, you know, three, let's let's you know, let's just inject it in people. Um, I, I mean, we're looking at this and it's mind boggling. And then I want to I, I want to just read the end of this paragraph because it will also make you want to blow your head off. You ready? Additionally, FDA determined it is reasonable to conclude based on the totality of the scientific evidence available that the known and potential benefits of Pfizer Biotech COVID-19 vaccine outweigh the known and potential risks of the vaccine. How do they okay. know that? No, 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 no. They're being slick with their words. They're saying that it's the known and potential benefits of Pfizer no. Biotech outweigh the known and potential risk. I agree with you. Bodies is because you don't know what the future risk will be. Yes, it is true. The known risks. If you were looking at the potential benefits against the known risks, then that is right. But if you look at the actual um, rate at which people might die, and then if you look at how much protection this is actually giving them, is it worth the risk on your plate of what could happen? 
Now, that is not to say that something definitely will happen, but it is to say that this is new and something could happen. And they're being slick here because they're purposely saying that it will, um, the FDA determined is reasonable to conclude based on the totality of the potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks. Of course it does. But yeah, right. is this thing so good that it's worth the risk of something happening down the line? And if you start looking, which I, I think this is a good segue into um, the ARR versus um, the RRR, then of course not. You would have to be a dumbass to take this thing. Right. Right. Um, okay. By the way, just one more thing that um, I think people should be aware of in terms of uh, us kind of pointing out some of the lies and misinformation that exists in here. So firstly, if you guys are interested in where I got that paragraph from, just to show you that I wasn't making it up, you can go find this document. It's right from the FDA.gov. Um, I don't remember what page it was on, but it's there. I mean, go read the thing. It's a. It's not that fun of a read, but it's in there. Um, I think the other thing that's worth noting is that, and this was, um, there was an article on Zero Hedge that claimed that they purposely got rid of the control group. Oh, uh, I can comment on that if you want. Yeah. Oh, please take it from there then. Yeah. So. What's interesting is uh, for their study, so ideally what you would do, which actually pertains to exactly what you were talking about. So in order to uh, assay long-term risk, what you need to do is you need to keep a placebo group unvaccinated for an extended amount of time. Uh, you do this because then you can compare the, um, the unknown side effects of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. And this is the only way you can link causation of the vaccine causing a side effect that's unwanted. The only way you can do that is if you have a group of people that are still unvaxxed in that same study versus the ones you vaccinated at the same time with the same data. What Pfizer did and the FDA knows and had a part in is that months into their trial, as soon as they got the EUA, they, they did some hand-waving, and then they vaccinated the unvaxxed placebo group, thereby uh, ending, eliminating the long-term study of risk from the vaccine. So it's almost, and I think Rob was kind of getting at this, it's just clicking in my head now, like they put those words in the FDA authorization, and it's kind of linked to the known side effects. They know it's known because there's no way to, to know the unknown because they ruined the study. It's unbelievable. I mean, and and to say that we're going to make decisions for the entire universe based on this information, and then here here comes what to me is the most incredible part. We spoke about it briefly um, the other week. I'm going to pull these no notes off the screen, but I want to kind of better explain to people um, the absolute risk, um, the absolute uh, looking at it from an ARR perspective as opposed to a relative risk reduction perspective. And I think that this example puts it perfectly. Imagine you have a 86-year-old person, right, who's a diabetic, and you've got a 16-year-old athlete, okay? And we only have one vaccine. We got one vaccine, and we're about to make a decision. Are we going to give this to the 86-year-old diabetic, or are we going to give this to the 16-year-old? Uh, and let's go from their perspective. Corona is this terrible thing. Most logical people, if you look at it from a relative risk reduction, you go, hey, this thing's 95% um, effective. I only have one. This is a 16-year-old. This is an 86-year-old man. We better give this to the 16-year-old because he's got more life to live. The 86-year-old's 86. Let's give it to the 16-year-old. That would be the relative risk reduction approach is that there's 95% protection by taking this. Absolute risk reduction would go, okay, well, what's the risk that this person actually gets it? 
Well, the old person has a very high risk, which means that there's a lot of utility to getting this because it's going to offer him more protection than the 16-year-olds who almost definitely won't get corona. From that graph we showed of the percent of people that died of COVID, whether their age, right? So the point is, the absolute risk reduction is the crucial information to evaluate whether or not this is worth taking. How much risk do I have of getting sick and how much protection will this offer me? And if you start looking at the health categories, right? Because it's true. It's true for the 16-year-old that there is a relative risk reduction of 95% for the Pfizer. That doesn't mean anything because there could be unknown side effects. And so exactly how much protection are you offering to this 16-year-old? And I would venture to guess that it borders on zero because 16-year-olds are not going to hospitals. They're not dying. If you look at the actual Pfizer study, it appears that there's equal, if not technically more deaths in the people that have actually been vaccinated. So what information do they have that they're not conveying to us to suggest that there is a global pandemic in which you should not be able to leave your homes unless you've taken these vaccines? I invite anyone on our show, robsnewsroom at gmail.com. Maybe you have information that you and I are not seeing in these documents that we don't understand, but simple questions. Why wouldn't the absolute risk reduction be the first thing that you would have a conversation about? It makes no sense to me why you would look past that. Then you're forced to say we should be vaccinating the children first because who doesn't care about children over the old? And then two, like exactly what are we preventing against? How much benefit can possibly come from taking these things? And what is going on that you guys want to push this as hard as you, you, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I put the question out there. I invite anybody on. It's literally get the jabs in arms, cover up the evidence. Let's see what happens. You know, I mean, I, I like I, I hate to be it, it's funny because you look at these three documents and I, I don't know how you see it any other way. It just seems to me it's like it just seems so evident. At first, I was just trying to be like, hey, let's find some loose evidence that they're clearly trying to cover the tracks and lying. But then when you look at this stuff, you're like, it, this is blatant. I mean, they're they're almost not even covering their tracks that well. Right. And, and I do want to say that, that that study, at least that document was a preprint, but it, it's still up and it was published like uh, 10, 12 months ago. So 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 it's not it's not been like taken down or discredited those numbers. So I just want to put that out there, too. So all right. Rob at Gmail dot com. I invite anybody if you have more information on this, um, please let me know. Let's take a, a couple minutes and let's grab a couple questions and then let's move on to I know you have some more in-depth topics and to tease what's coming up. Uh, we now know that natural immunity actually works better. Uh, we also know that Israel's having clear problems despite high vaccination rates. Uh, we've got things to explore such as uh, the PCR and how these PCR tests are working and being administered. And then uh, the last thing that we're probably going to take a secondary look at is, um, and you know, like you said, taking a victory lap, but we do have um, a lot of understanding of the fact that these vaccines can't possibly work against variants, which is an additional aspect of, well, if we know that variants are coming, why are we injecting people? So let's let's take a minute for comments, and then I'm going to hand it back over to you. We'll put the presentation back up. Um, let's start with Scott Schultz. He's been throwing uh, uh, a lot of comments in here. Remember four lines of the initial Vax card before boosters ever got announced. Shit. Yeah, because on your vaccine card, he's right. They, you know, it wasn't just check if you got it. It was boom, 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 boom. Yeah. 
that might Scott's- be a function of, of, of just the, 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 the thing of that all vaccine cards and records kind of have that just because you're supposed to put different vaccines, not necessarily boosters. Have you tried taking this information to any other outlets? Listen, me and we were first working on this this week and putting it together. I also spent about four hours this morning trying to really wrap my head around the absolute risk reduction. So the answer is yes. I'm trying to get the story out there. We're starting with this right here, right now. You're kind of actively seeing uh, me and Steven working on the story and trying to like clearly lay out that this is insanity. Um, I think maybe as we dig in more, we'll, and we kind of better hone in on some of what's clearly not true. Uh, maybe we'll try and bring it to some more places, but you know, we're, I, I can tell you, I don't, I didn't do well in school. I don't like sitting down reading science papers. This is not my expertise. This is not even what I like doing. Believe me, this some random girl from the show last night invited me out on her boat today. And instead I sat down to read a fucking CDC thing to crunch numbers like this is not ideally the, what I'd like to be doing with my time. So Scott, the answer is, you know, I'm giving about as much as I can to this amidst my other responsibilities. All right, let's take uh, one more uh, comment or, and then let's actually, go back. Well, yeah. Just to that, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I wouldn't say outlets, but like, you know, even the people that I've worked closely with, PhDs and everything, like they'll say stuff behind the scenes and we'll like kind of laugh at it, but they're not going to say anything. They'll lose their job. Right. And and the same thing at the company that I used to work for uh, a year ago um, while I also ran my own, um, they were mandating all these masks and vaccines and, um, you know, everyone just kind of wink, winked at each other. But um, there's really no getting it out. So I think Rob and, and I think this avenue is the best way to get it out. So it, uh, just... Is it because I, it almost sounds to me like that's the we pretend like our society isn't socialist, but it kind of is. And that's kind of the issue with socialism is that since I guess like so much money comes downwind from government and centralized control, that's you can't have people going like, hey, this is stupid. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm kind of pulling this out of my ass, but and this is going to be something that I got to look into. But it sounds like so much of the medical research or uh, contracts or whatever is coming downwind from government or downwind from insurance companies, losing licenses that people, even if a lot of people might think that this is dumb, they can't afford to speak out against it. Is that, and I mean, you work in the field, so I don't know why, like, I I feel like I'm dumb and I'm just reading a couple documents and going, how is every doctor just put like, are they not interested to read this stuff? Do they just take their marching orders? Like, I almost don't understand how am I the guy who's reading this and going, hey, this doesn't make sense. Uh, don't get me started on medical doctors. I think they are a a oh, um, how do I say this? I think people go to the hospital to die. Medical doctors are the farthest thing from scientists. They're more like a Windows ninety five computer. Um, they they look, they listen, and then they say, "Oh, this is what I memorized. Here you go." And that's not even getting into kind of the politics of what they actually give you. Um, and, and I'm not saying every doctor is like this. Obviously there are medical doctors that are brilliant scientists. I'm saying medical doctors aren't scientifically trained and they can't be expected to even have a one tenth of the knowledge of a normal research associate out of college that's working in a pharma industry. And, and that's just the, the fact of it. Right. And, and, and then to go back to your other point, talking about the government and kind of a one wave tree down to pharma, it's actually more of a circle. So just in small molecules, you're not going after a drug that will help a lot of people. You're going after a drug that hasn't been patented that can get an insurance code. No one pays for their medicine in this country. It's all insurance. 
And so the limiting factor is for, for me creating a, a drug to cure something is getting an insurance code for it. Because only then does it get blasted out and can I make money and it gets uh, through the system. So, so in fact, a lot of the system is very circular in that you're, you're just checking boxes and it's kind of like you scratch my back and then I'll scratch your back. And it kind of goes very circular because the government gives down these grants and then they have some say over kind of what you do with the money. Um, you know, I don't want to get too down the, the rabbit hole, but like to say that there's no conflicts of interest or that this isn't just like people in the DOD fucking uh, Northrop Grumman people, right? And giving each other contracts. It's the same shit. All right. So let's get uh, back into your presentation. Yeah. I'm going to pull it up here. Excellent. And, and, and yeah, so, um, and so I'll just add this to the slide, but we actually just covered this really well. Um, I, I just go through um, basically what we said and highlighted some things in that statement that stood out to me, specifically them saying, oh, there are no known risks, but we followed people for two months after. Two months? Give me a break. Are you kidding? Yeah. And so, yeah, and, and this is just another example of absolute risk reduction and relative risk reduction, how you can have a 90% risk reduction if your clinical trial gave you two out of 100 uh, vaccinated got disease versus 20 unvaccinated got disease, but the ARR is only 18%. So this is just another way to do this calculation, just uh, so people can look at it later to put some more uh, minds to RRR and why you would never use it. And you would actually want to know what's your risk if you get the vaccine of not, you know, what's your helpfulness of getting the vaccine overall, not if you got this disease that you may not ever get. And so, and so now applying those real numbers to uh, real world data. And so this is actually um, uh, new uh, data that Rob actually sent over and we calculated both uh, the ARR and RRR for these COVID cases in New York state, I believe, in my, um, and uh, according to this link. And so what this uh, says right here is it shows you that of new cases, it has the fully vaccinated and the rate and that's important, and the unvaccinated and the rate. And so to calculate the absolute rel, uh, risk reduction, we just take the percent of unvaccinated new cases minus the percent of vaccinated new cases. And that's giving us our absolute relative risk reduction in new cases. So it's important here that new cases is literally just a positive COVID test. And so here it's pretty interesting that we see the ARR for new cases it's actually uh, depending on the week, and this is actually weeks from May to uh, July of last year. And this, uh, the ARR, you can see it's actually about 18%, but it fluctuates quite a lot as we go down. And again, this is the ARR just for infectivity. And it's important that the trials on the vaccine, their readout was on hospitalizations and obviously death. So the ARR that we're talking about has to do with hospitalizations and death. Which, uh, yeah. And then, so if we move over here, speaking of the uh, hospitalizations, so here is the calculated ARR for the hospitalizations. Again, taking very sporadic data just from a couple months in New York. In New York. And you can see the ARR for hospitalizations, and I would imagine deaths here too, would be uh, is 3.58 at the highest and goes down to about 0.9 or 0.97 here and comes back to 1.86. And it's important to point out here that, uh, again, this is rather sporadic data, but you can see it, it aligns with what we see in the Pfizer trial. All right, I'm on board. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. And, and, and so um, it actually kind of gives me a little bit of confidence in the trial data. But then again, like we just went over, that trial data is saying a very different story, though. And, and I think what's interesting here is that, you know what, maybe there could be a case made that there, there is some, some uh, effectiveness of the vaccine in, in, uh, in, in decreasing new cases. Someone could say, make that claim from this data. I would only refer you back to the slide in which we talked about how are they doing these, uh, are these PCR positive infections, um, you know, and, and so forth. But you could still make the case that the vaccine here does seem to give like an 18% absolute risk reduction in getting COVID. So again, maybe an argument if you're over the age of 65 or and if COVID is a worry to you, then maybe you should get the vaccine. Now I got to, maybe this is dumbassery, but if there's a 20% risk reduction, okay. If there's a 20% risk reduction in terms of getting COVID, if I've gotten the shot, then wouldn't that have to suggest that if the hospitalization and levels that the people with the shot, if they are getting COVID are actually getting significantly sicker because otherwise you have to make up for a 20, like in other words, let's take two groups of a hundred people, right? So if one group has a 20% risk reduction, so that means only 80, 80 of them can potentially get COVID versus the other group, a hundred of them can potentially get COVID, right? Right. That's what that 20% is. Okay. So now let's say we walk into a room with COVID and a hundred and there's 80, right? Right. So there's, there should be more cases, just law of large numbers in the hundred group, there should be more people that actually filter down to serious illness because more of them would actually get sick. So let, let's just take the two groups and let's say that let's just pull a number out of our asses that 30% actually show symptoms of COVID, right? right. You're better at math than I am. What's 30, 30% of a hundred's easy. That's 30, 30% of 80. I don't know. You give me a just, number. I'm not good. Uh, just divide by three, like uh, maybe 24. Okay, fine. So we got 24 against 30, right? 26. Yeah. 26. No, it sounds, it really, it's basically, no, I think 24 is right. I think it's 24. I think it's 24 against 30. Okay. So if I got 24 against 30, right? So with more people getting sick, like, especially if you start doing the same math for, you know, 100,000 people, so 100,000 people, I've got 3,000 people sick versus 2,400. So that's 600 more people that could potentially become hospitalized and have more advanced illness, right? So it would seem to suggest then if we have this information, right? There's an imbalance. No, that once people are getting sick and there are breakthrough rates, um, it it would be the opposite of what they're suggesting that you won't be hospitalized or ill. It's more like you should be protected from getting sick, but if you do get sick, you would actually seemingly have higher odds, right? Because- Because otherwise, how would you end up with more hospitalizations and deaths amongst right. the... Because it's a tree, right? You don't get here unless you've counted here, is what you're saying, right? And so then you break that. Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. That's actually really fascinating. Um, I think that's a good point. And, and I think it would also be interesting to see the breakdown per age, right? Because we know, we know that um, some people um, just don't get affected by COVID. So it might be a breakdown per age, like maybe a lot of older oh, people. Oh, you mean all of this information could be potentially distorted by the fact that age younger age. people, there might be less, well, the it's Pfizer like, study doesn't include necessarily, um, they might've fucked up because maybe they don't have enough kids in the study. I don't know. I'm, I'm losing my focus here a little. No, 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 no. You're absolutely, you actually almost nailed it. The Pfizer study didn't, account for infection dude they didn't give pcr to everyone 
So there's no there's no data on that. Does that make sense? But in the uh, in the FDA document, there was the there was the uh, information on adverse on, on no, the, no, no, no. On the FDA document, there was just the information for COVID cases. There wasn't the information for adverse events, unless maybe I missed it and it was later in the document, which is why I invite anybody to come on the show or email me and let me know what I'm what I'm getting wrong. Please tell me I'm being Alex Jones here. <laughs> right. I think no, but I, I guess that. But what I'm also saying is that, like, so if if an old if like just during these weeks, a lot of older people got hit with COVID then you would see, you know, then then that might distort the facts because older people, even with the vaccine, might be more likely to die. Um, so I, I guess I see what you're saying, that it could be broken down because if they get a 20% less rate of getting COVID, you're like 20% more protected from dying, right? And that's what you're saying. So it should be a smaller a smaller group. Um, but again, I think they're, they're dealing with percentages. So the actual total number might not mean that much. Does that make sense? I'm not sure that I follow, but let's let's push forward. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and um, yeah, and, and so here actually, just really briefly going over what we did last time, part of the uh, the the really astonishing victory lap. So this is really important. Uh, viral evolution is both mutation and natural selection. Um, you're gonna hear a lot of these hack medical doctors and people on television like Fauci tell you this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Unvaccinated people are causing all our troubles, including these mutants. That's uh, blatantly, uh, it's, it's nonsense because one, uh, viruses are the fastest replicating biological entity. Uh, one virus infects your cells within you know, hours. You have hundreds, if not thousands of viruses coming from that one cell. All of that can be a little different. Yes, from one cell, you can get many different viral mutants. Um, the fact that we see about four or five pr uh, prevalent strains right now, particularly like Delta and Gamma and, and Lambda or whatever that you guys are, are hearing about, that's not because the virus is just mutating. Viruses mutate within individuals all the time. That's because of this other part of the equation, the natural selection part. And so that, that question gets to me is, what is selecting for these variants? Virology 101. We're talking about a coronavirus. Think of a, a, a small ball with goo on the outside with little nails, right? And the only thing exposed that helps the virus get into cells is that little nail. That's the spike protein. And these original vaccines, the mRNA vaccines that we have, they produce that little spike protein in your own cells, and then it makes antibodies against the spike protein. Well, as we're seeing these mutants come, the only difference between the mutants and the original COVID is that one spike protein. So my hypothesis is that both through natural immunity, but also specifically through these vaccine-induced uh, immunity, we're actually helping select for these mutants. And the point that I'm uh, making is that by always staying behind the curve and vaccinating people with, against, with an mRNA vaccine against the original COVID spike protein, when we know that original COVID uh, is not infecting anyone anymore. In fact, the original COVID spike protein isn't around. So the fact that we're giving people boosters against that original spike protein is ridiculous when these new variants are coming in with different spike proteins. And what is their counter? Like, what what is even their claim for what they try and say is that the antigens or uh, the antibodies wear off. And so after six months, you need the boosters so that you'll have the antibodies. And what you're saying is, yeah, but the antibodies that you have 
are for the old thing and it's not even it doesn't matter that's the old thing right and and so this would be their argument it's it's a spectrum and and it gets a little technical so the spike protein isn't just one protein um it's a protein that's made up of 1200 amino acids so amino acids are just like the leucine you know branch chain amino acids for your pre-workout it's just 1200 of those put in order equals the COVID spike protein so the difference between these mutants and the original COVID spike protein is anywhere from maybe 10 to 20 of those amino acids. But those amino acids are in very important spots. So this is important. So yeah, giving someone the original COVID spike protein, a majority of that spike protein is going to have the same amino acids and confirmation as these new mutants because when a virus mutates its 1200 amino acids on its spike protein it's a very delicate dance they mutate a lot but a lot of those viruses are ineffective and can't infect anything that's what the selection process is so by by vaccinating people against the whole 1200 amino acid og spike protein you're still you're still you're still priming the immune system against the spike protein but again, the point is, as the more boosters we're giving in people with this original mRNA formulation, the more we're just coaxing the virus to keep changing that spike protein to, to keep finding a way around that just one single mRNA. And let's also keep in mind that we now know that your natural immunity, I think, is 12 to 13 times right. greater than getting the shot. So if we went with a natural immunity, hey, kids, go get sick strategy, go live your life. You're probably not going to die. Um, the herd immunity thing would be more robust immunity. Um, and would circle back. Right. Yeah. Right. Hey, this is unprofessional, but I'm, I'm, I'm taking a quick piss. So you're just going to have to, you know, you could talk to them about Can anything. I? Oh, sweet. I'm on it. Yeah. Okay. I'll be back in literally 60 seconds. Oh yeah, dude. It's all good. Yeah. And so that's what really pisses me off is that we are literally forcing, you know, some people that don't even know any better, like really cute elderly people to get these boosters of the, you know, original COVID spike protein. When, as you can see in this, in this graphic from the CDC, they go ahead and tell you that all these variants have different spike proteins. And yet they're still begging us to not only get original COVID spike vaccines, but to keep getting boosters. And, um, and, and again, the point I really want to drive home is that, um, you, you know, these mutations would have happened naturally, of course. Um, I, I suspect it would have given them a lot harder time because if we had natural immunity, uh, as we'll go in, natural immunity uh, offers a much greater antibody response than just an mRNA uh, spike protein. And this kind of makes sense, right? Uh, traditionally, we covered this before. When you make vaccines, the first thing I would do is create a bunch of virus in the lab, a bunch of COVID-19 or flu. Or, uh, or polio. And what they actually done in the past is fix it with formaldehyde. This is the same body, that, uh, the same chemical they use on dead bodies. And it's a very potent, um, uh, it, it links residues together, chemical residues in such a way that it, it inactivates all life. And so what we would do is actually formaldehyde fix the virus and then inject it in you. And then you have uh, white blood cells, like your Pac-Man cells would come by, literally chew up that whole virus and then present little pieces of it to your B cells that then make antibodies. And the reason that, you know, this has worked for us for literally, you know, since humans were around, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands, whatever years ago, uh, natural immunity is that it's a very effective way at constantly screening what's in your body 
on your B cells to see what's the most effective antibody and, and how is it going to work. And this is in stark contrast to, to jabbing someone and having them overexpress this just spike protein from the original COVID in their muscles um, at a very high level. Cool. Hey, I'm curious, what's that smart juice that you're drinking? Oh, dude, that's a bro. One of the great things of Orange County is a lot of good breweries. This is actually a jungle juice hard cider from brewery. Oh, okay. Ed. Yeah, dude, 10% alcohol, Anaheim. Man, you're doing this while chugging that. Good for you. That's a trooper. Oh, and good opportunity to plug our sponsors if you want to party like Steven over there and uh, you know, still be able to acquire all this medical information. Uh, why not hang out with the Yo family brands? If you're over the age of 21, you'll create them home with a $6 kilo. I become a big fan of their train wreck. Train wreck, single pill. You just got to take one. That's the move. Just take one and it's an upper. Don't do it every day. Save it for special occasions. But a single train wreck pill, you can get through your workday, no problem. It's like, uh, it's a good stimulant. And then Yo Delta, you know, you can get yourself high. You take a gummy, you hit that vape pen and uh, you'll create them no promo code. Yo Delta, RYM, you get 20, or maybe 25, something. You get a percent off and you'll get high. So it's a good time. Steven, back to you. Hell yeah, dude. Um, and and um, and yeah. And so this is actually just um, more evidence. This is a graph from the CDC meeting that they actually presented in August. And so here it actually shows you. Uh, I know I kind of put you on the spot, Rob, last time. I asked okay. The difference between you know Delta and the original COVID. So here's actually a breakdown, so everyone can have it. And and what's interesting here is here are the numbers of mutations on the spike protein that I was talking about. And, and if you go down, you'll see the attributes, particularly with Delta over here, it even says potential reduced neutralization by vaccine sera. That's just fancy words to, to say that vaccine antibodies are not working. Ah, uh, okay. And, and, um, and, and, and yeah, and also just because you'll probably uh, see, see a lot of, uh, whoops, sorry, make sure I don't run out of battery. Perfect. Um, uh, a lot of this uh, serum is just red blood, uh, is just blood that's been spun down so there are no cells in it. So um, the, the antibodies are flowing through your blood. Um, it's just all your red blood cells are really annoying in the lab. They're just kind of useless. So what we do is we centrifuge it down and it creates all the red blood cells to the bottom of the tube. And then there's just this like milky yellow stuff where your antibodies are. And it's called your serum. And so that's just what they're used to test. And, and so now if you want to get into it, I, I would like to just to talk about that preprint study from Israel. So what is a preprint? It's like, uh, great it, yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's an absolutely great question. So in scientific papers, uh, usually you would do, you know, uh, anywhere from like eight months to maybe three plus years of experiments and make an argument. You then formulate that argument in a very specific way according to the scientific journal you want to enter it in. And then you actually submit that article to the journal. The journal then takes that article and distributes it to random uh, professionals in the field who then peer review it. And then they go back and forth saying, hey, I think this experiment's bullshit. I think you're lying. You need to redo this. And they go back and forth until it's approved. And then it's published in a journal. What a preprint is, is basically that process can sometimes take years of back and forth saying this experiment, I want you to do this different or that data didn't check out. It's part of the process that makes peer review so trustworthy, at least in the views of scientific, right? But what a preprint is, is during that back and forth process, before the journals have actually published it, you can actually go ahead to some uh, medical sites and say, this is a preprint. We've submitted this to this journal. We're just going back and forth, but this is such important information. I want it out there. 
All right, got it. Right. And and so and yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. And um yeah, and so basically this came out three days ago too, and, and it is uh very relevant information. And honestly, um it's not that hard of a study to uh understand. So I, I might just do some reading and, and and then we'd talk and ask away, but uh this isn't my words, this is from the actual study. Uh, this analysis demonstrated that natural immunity affords longer lasting and stronger protection against, against infection, symptomatic disease, and hospitalization due to the Delta variant. And specifically, uh, the natural immunity confers longer lasting and stronger protection against infections, uh, symptomatic disease, hospitalization by Delta, uh, compared to two doses of the Pfizer vaccine-induced immunity. There it is, plain English. Uh, yeah, and, and, and to put some actual numbers to it. So, uh, with, and and by the way, the, uh, we were talking about studies with 44,000 people and Pfizer 32, uh, 36,000. They did 700,000. Because it's a retrospective study, so they can actually look and say, okay, who, who you know, um, they can go back in time and look at people's records, particularly in Israel. But... Again, to put some other numbers to this, the risk of vaccine breakthrough, so just getting an infection if you had the vaccine, was 13-fold higher than your risk of getting a breakthrough infection if you just got infected normally. And this is very important. It doesn't say if you got infected normally by the Delta variant. It just says infected normally by any COVID variant. And that's the argument that I made in the previous slide. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and also the, the risk of hospitalization was sevenfold higher. So again, infection was 13-fold higher and, and hospitalization was sevenfold higher. And so the question that I pose is, you know, you know, how much is the vaccine helping and how much is it hurting? And maybe more specifically, who is the vaccine helping and who is the vaccine hurting? Right. Well, I mean, theoretically, it's hurting... I mean, it seems so funny. You could probably vaccinate if you just look at it from the ARR perspective. So you take your risk categories and you give them the vaccine. Everybody else who's probably not going to die of Corona, you let them go get sick. And then you've got robust herd immunity from the kids that weren't getting sick have natural immunity. And the old people, they've got the, you know, the single spike at least. So they've got that level of protection. And then actually... I, I mean, I guess everyone's saying that we don't get rid of uh, COVID viruses, so, you know, coronaviruses. So it's probably not, uh, I don't know. Is that true? Is there a potential herd immunity to this thing or it's it's here forever and that's what it is? I don't know, man. These things are awfully complicated. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, anyone that's not like humbled, viruses are a lot smarter than we are, man. Um, but that also doesn't mean they'll be around forever. Um, I think anyone that's like really trying to go out more than a couple of years is... Um, doesn't know what they're talking about. So I, I think that's to be determined. But I think what's more important is that there's never been a virus that goes throughout time that gets more infectious. Um, right. It just doesn't work. And and it is. I, I, but I could that something. just as a th as a theoretical, could that not be because your theory is that the reason for that is um, that we're forcing it to mutate in a non-natural way, which is actually going to make it more infectious or possibly even worse. Okay. Right. Now I, you're right. And, and because we're balancing both vaccine immunity and nat immunity. And just because you have vaccine immunity doesn't mean you have nat immunity, but you could have both eventually, right? Because everyone's going to run into it eventually. Okay. Now, 
Could it also be that because maybe this was made in a lab and it's not your typical virus, that it's also not going to evolve in a typical viral way? I think that's an interesting argument. I say it's not very plausible. Um, okay. Because I, 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 I'm at risk of getting your YouTube banned and maybe the FBI investigating both of us, if I was to create a virus, um, I would do, I, I, I wouldn't design, I wouldn't over design it, if that makes sense. The viruses, okay. the viruses are like water that flows down a mountain. It's going to find, it's going to find the way that works best for it. And, um, oh, so in other words, you don't need to tinker with it too much. Uh, you almost just need to open up the door. It's like, if you just kind of right. make one tweak, you want to let it play itself out. Okay. I mean, I conceptually understand that. I don't know nothing about science, but conceptually, right. I get what you're well, saying. It, it's, it just, it's just, it's so hard. And I could tell you stories of me. I literally, I literally got uh, the like 20, 2005 influenza virus that killed like hundreds of thousands of people in uh, Japan and China sent to me and I was doing experiments with it. Right. And a trouble I had, I'm not even kidding. You can order this if, if you have a company. The trouble I was having is that I couldn't get it to infect cells. Imagine that this is a virus that that was in frozen in time for about 10 years that I ordered because I was doing some experiments to see if we could neutralize it with another chemical and I couldn't get the control to work. So I had this super infectious influenza virus, but it was it was just hard to translate that to cells in a dish. And similarly to that, it's hard to translate from cells in a dish to a real human body. And the, And that's the only point I would like to make that you can design, you know, you, you know, you can design a virus to be like a BSVG, BSVG pseudotyped envelope that can infect any cell and, and it can have like the craziest protein ever. But by the time it infects one person or two people, that shit's already changed, bro. That virus is gone. It's already a new virus, you know? Yeah. All right. So, look, I'm learning so much fucking science, dude. You should have been yeah. my science teacher. I would have listened to shit. <laughs> I'm down, dude. You'd be my drinking tea. <laughs> Hell yeah. I don't know. You might be better. You might also be better at that than me, man. It's, you're three hours earlier into the day and getting after it. Yeah, oh, hell yeah. But it's just, it's just, um, it's amazing. And, and I think, you know, we could do a whole nother show on these people knew this, right? You know, the, people have tried making vaccines against common cold and stuff before, you know, it's, this stuff is very well known and and the propaganda and misinformation almost got me to cry a little while ago and you know it's very depressing but this is fun and i'm glad we're talking about it man <laughs> holy shit um and, and and this is another really interesting thing again going to this misinformation and and this just rung out to me as i was reading those articles today i want to talk about antibodies versus outcomes and why the U.S., the focus is on antibodies, which is very indirectly correlated to the effectiveness of vaccines. And to that, I'll just say, I could go outside and crunch up some grass and inject you with grass, right? And, and, and that could, you know, prime your immune system, right? And then you, you would build antibodies. You know, it, it's whatever I put in you, you're going to build antibodies to it. That's not a function of your immunity to it. Right. Particularly when we're talking about viruses and we and I really do want to get into ways that the vaccine could actually be increasing viral infection. So such as antibody dependent enhancement. This is just a fancy word for saying the same antibodies that are supposed to surround the virus and neutralize it actually help the virus get into cells. So in this case, your body producing antibodies can actually be detrimental to your infection of COVID because COVID 
change the spike protein ever so bit, or maybe it's receptor binding domain, that these same antibodies you were making that were working before against another COVID now actually helps this new COVID get into cells. How, so, okay. How does that happen? So you got antibodies, but it doesn't, it doesn't break the thing, but since it's already entered your cells, it almost like paved a road or something. Right. Well, actually, so, oh, sorry. So antibodies work by, um, they, they'll bind specifically and then their backside. So they think of them as a Y. So they're, they bind and then their Y side signals to your immune cells to come eat me that this is danger. Like you need to check this shit out. And so what right. happens is that when those antibodies are in certain formations or in certain parts of the virus, it can signal to certain cells to eat that virus. And then they can either process that virus and make uh, and make uh, antibodies against it, or those same antibodies can signal other cell types to eat the virus and actually get infected by the virus. So it's essentially using the same antibody-dependent okay. mechanism against you. I, so, I so potentially a new variant could come around, and the antibodies that you have. Uh, could could boost the infection now is that true also from natural antibodies or just of remember remember we're talking with natural immunity you have many different types of antibodies but even with the okay. vaccinated immunity because remember we're talking about the 1200 amino acid spike protein and it's only right. changing five and so that's why we see a spectrum right it's not like we're going to wake up tomorrow and the vaccines aren't going to work but we are going to see a decline in them over time and that's what we're seeing and 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 again just to your point of, of antibody dependent enhancement um, there are multiple different types of cells that get signaled by this too. And and essentially, you can think of if, if the antibody isn't binding the virus in the right spot, the virus can still move around the body. And if the virus still has enough of its little spike hanging out, it can actually infect other cells. And having that antibody on it can actually mask the virus and help it infect other cells. Interesting. And, and, and 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 this, I know uh, I'm not even kidding. I just learned about this maybe two or three years ago when I when I was doing my own uh, COVID diagnostics, right? With my partner, he mentioned this, and I told him, "You're fucking crazy, dude. That doesn't work." And, well, I'm serious. So so like you're amazed, dude. I I was there a couple of years ago, dude. But sure enough, it's very it's very virus family type specific. And guess which fucking virus family is most commonly associated with antibody dependent enhancement? Coronas. So in other words, it's somewhat predictable that as there are variants, it's not so much that these vaccines are going to weaken your immunity, but they're actually going to boost potential viral transmissibility within your own body. Through multiple different mechanisms. Now, antibody-dependent enhancement is down on my list of those mechanisms. First is just the natural selection. Like you said, we're asking the virus to go to the gym. When when I have that natural immunity, I have way a much more robust set of antibodies to attack that virus and its mutant friends. When you have just that vaccine, you're saying, hey, virus with a different spike protein, come get me. All right, let's continue. Yeah. Okay, and, and so just to wrap it up, too, this is just something I did at uh, my company. This is something I wanted to do to kind of create an at-home or an easier color metric test for COVID-19 uh, uh, genetic material. So this is actually a form of the PCR test. And uh, what this, what this uh, light-up thing is, this is actually called the gel. And this is a DNA gel. And what you do is you load your samples at the top here, and then you send electricity through the gel. 
And based on the size of the DNA bands that you have, they'll migrate to different positions on the gel. So remember how we were talking about like the A, G, C's and T's and, and kind of the primer design and how many, you know, what number of nucleic uh, acids are in a row. So uh, basically what this gel is showing me um, is that, uh, or sorry, um, I guess I'll start from the top too. So uh, the point of the gel was to see that if we could amplify COVID nucleic, uh, uh, nucleic acid and then correlate that to a positive color metric test. So essentially the idea here on the top was at each of these lanes, I took no COVID uh, DNA, and then I took uh, two parts COVID DNA. So literally only two strands of COVID DNA. Here I took 20 strands, 200 strands, 2000 strands, 20. Can I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Just me being curious. Yeah. So yeah. someone with two strands, does that, could that mean that they just got infected and it could become a bigger infection? Like what, what is, what, what does two strands imply? Or does that imply you're on the way out or your body's really good at containing it? What does that mean? That is a great point. And that comes back to our PCR conversation about, um, and, and this isn't, this, this isn't related to cycle threshold. This is actually, I designed this to get away from cycle threshold. So this is actually a different type of diagnostic test. It's just a positive or minus based on this limit of detection. But to answer your question, um, sorry, what was your question? About the DNA. Yeah, my question was, what does the two represent? Does that oh. mean that, like, the guy doesn't have corona, he's about to get corona, like, he's immune? For, like, what, what, is it, what does the two represent, two viral particles? Right. So, again, these actually aren't necessarily viral particles. We're going after the genetic material, so we're actually just going after the skeletons. So okay. This, so this is again kind of going after the skeletons, but it could still, um, it was still interesting, and honestly, I wanted. to to do this just to show that I could do it. Um, it was pretty neat. And and so and so essentially to answer your question, what does two mean? Two means just two strands of DNA. So ideally if you had if you had two two coronaviruses in a tube and you ran it, this is what um, that's what you would get is two two copies of that DNA. And what does that mean? Well it could mean it could mean anything from you just transiently uh, breathed in uh, a little bit of coronavirus to it's on its way out to maybe you got like one super coronavirus that's then going to very unprobabilistically infect you and spread. Okay. And uh, yeah, and then and so, but that's very important. It's not necessarily directly correlated, but surely the more viruses you have or the more infection, the more DNA you're going to have, right? Right. Uh, so, so it's related, but it's just important to make that difference between the antigen and the and the genetic material. And yeah, and and, and so um, what you can see here is that after um, we're doing the reactions in these small tubes, they actually change certain colors. And so, what was exciting for me to see here is that the negative control, so just water running the reaction, is going to be pink. And then, so then we went up and I added the two strands of DNA. It was also pink, which and was the negative reaction. And then also with 20, you can see pink, a negative reaction. And to confirm this, I ran it on a gel. And so again, this is a DNA gel. And so ideally what you would see is if your DNA band that we were talking about got amplified, it would get amplified so much, I would be able to see it on a gel. And this is actually very similar to the amplification that goes through cycle threshold number. So the more cycle thresholds you have, the more amplification of this DNA, if you can see this little line ever so slightly, 
this DNA is the COVID, is the little stretch of the COVID RNA or the COVID DNA that I wanted to amplify. And as you can see, as it's correlated to the color, this little stretch got amplified when we added more and more copies of the nucleic acid. So what this shows me is that the limit of detection for this test would be right around 200 copies of that nucleic acid. Um, and, and in which case we would get an orange readout in our test, which would be indicative of some presence of the coronavirus genetic material. Okay, and then just a uh, question for you. I, yeah. You then have to test to see if 200 is the perfect number or if like 100 would also correspond with someone who was like infected. Like I'm sure there's a way to establish what the perfect number would be. A absolutely. Yeah, you could definitely get more. And, and for that, you would need to repeat this experiment. And for actually that, you might bring it over to one of those more analytical machines, which actually do the cycle threshold number. So for something like this, I designed it to be quick and easy and maybe even an at-home test. Uh, so it could be done at one temperature, 60 degrees. So you could actually do it potentially on in a pot of water. Um, and so the idea here was just to give people a binary yes or no. And actually, I was going after something similar to the antigen test, where actually I didn't want the specificity to be too big, but I did want the specificity to get if you were really infected. All right. And so what, which government agency shot you down? <laughs> actually, I applied just for uh, a bunch of different grant programs. And um, yeah, it, they just uh, they just they weren't into it. They, no, they just weren't into it. And, and, and then we'll go into the antigen one where I'll show you uh, directions next right here. Um, the, these are, you know, um, no one cared about this stuff years ago. And now it's now they're trying to mass produce them and send them to every school. Right. And um, and, and so just finally to wrap it up, uh, this is how to do um, a pregnancy test and very similar how to test your uh, your body for antibodies against a certain antigen. It really just requires this special paper. And you can see in this uh, in, in this diagram. And all you do is you need to order the antigen you want to test against. So what I did is I ordered the spike protein from a company in Maryland. So you can actually order a little liquefied bottle of COVID spike. And what nice. you do is you, yeah, dude, this built is it's, it's really crazy. Can you infect her? Could, could someone get infected with that? No, but you could vaccinate someone with it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's all right. I mean, we're now at 35 minutes in, but that's the craziest claim ever. So you're saying that if they did just decided to take that out of the formaldehyde and injected it, you would actually be vaccinated from COVID and they're just choosing not to vaccinate that way? Oh, sorry. The formaldehyde is only used when you want to make a vaccine. What I'm talking, this spike protein is all real spike protein, but it's only the spike protein. So what, what I ordered and what I got in the mail was just a vial of like uh, 10 milligrams of the spike protein. And that's the same spike protein, the mRNA vaccine is uh, telling your body to produce. So, so, so why the fuck do we need to go through mRNA when we could just inject the fucking spike protein? Tell me, tell me. Well, because MR mRNA is almost like a synthetic version of the spike protein. So you might as well just take the spike protein. MRNA is, the vaccine is a pseudo, it's a fake viral-like particle, right? What's a virus? A virus is an encapsulated by protein and, a, and usually a lipid with genetic material inside that then uses the host machinery to create an outcome. What the vaccine is, is an mRNA inside a little, uh, a little fatty little uh, protein capsule that then, go, that then gets injected in your muscle goes inside your cells and then tells your cells 
forces your cells to make this exogenous spike protein. So instead of having a fucking company in Maryland make it and send it to me, you're you're forcing your own body with your own amino acids and your own mRNA processing your your own body to make it. So we could just be jabbing ourselves with spike proteins instead. All right, I everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Robsnewsroom at gmail.com. Let me know. Is Steven absolutely yeah. insane? Let me Did he just too. turn on us? <laughs> All right. What else you got for us? Yeah. No, let me know too. Yeah. Shit, man. Um, yeah. And so, and, and so I'll just go through this really quick. Then we can summarize. But again, it's very, this is actually what happens with the pregnancy test. So you can imagine um, it, it, it's, it's a uh, opposite and so with a, a pregnancy test, they actually place the antibodies on the paper and then the antibodies detect what you wash over it. So, so women that are pregnant have a certain hormone. So when they pee on the stick that has antibodies, that hormone binds the antibodies and that's what, and that's what the pregnancy stick sees. So it's kind of the opposite of what we're doing, but I'll get, uh, I'll get back into what we're doing. So, so we have this special paper and we put the spike protein on it. We let it dry for two hours. And then what we do is we get non-fat milk, could be from the supermarket. The reason we use non-fat milk and we submerge it in it is non-fat milk is full of other crazy proteins. And we want those other proteins to kind of, to bind the paper and to, and to block all the non-specific binding. The key here is we wanna see if we have antibodies against the spike protein. So we wanna see very specific antibodies. So we use milk as a way to kind of cloud everything and make sure what we're dealing with is really effective and it has a tight bond. So we, we drop it in milk for a little bit. We then wash it with special water. And then we can actually take a prick of our blood or serum and uh, dilute it. So that just means add, add, uh, add more salt water to it just because a prick of blood is very small and it's hard to wash over the paper. So you then dilute it so you have enough to wash over the paper or the little spots. You then repeat where you, uh, you block with milk and then you wash with water. And then you can actually use a, a secondary antibody. So because what, a, what has been washed over the paper that has the spotted antigen is your blood and your serum. And inside your blood and your serum that we're washing that paper with the spike protein on, your antibodies will bind that spike protein as seen here by the green antibody. So while we, while we wash this paper we just made with your blood, um, your antibodies, if you have antibodies against to whatever we put on that paper, will bind. And then to go from there, it's just a secondary step where you have to order a special anti-human antibody. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but um, <laughs> you actually then just wash over another antibody that will bind to your antibody as seen here in the red. And then this secondary antibody is what allows you to see color. And so when you when you see the uh, when you see kind of a color metric readout, it's that secondary antibody. And through this kind of chain of antibodies, it's kind of like a sandwich, right? We have the spike protein, and then good thing you said that because I wasn't following. So <laughs> you, you put it in sandwich terms. You you get me here. It's a milk <laughs> yeah, sandwich of antibodies. Game over. It's actually called a sandwich a lot. Is a sandwich okay. too. Sorry, I assume yeah. that once you're doing it, it's like it would be easy to do. You probably just right. got to actually put milk inside of it so you don't have to actually go to the market and do right. cereal. Or you do it like cereal where the you put the blood on the spoon first, you put the milk in, and like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but but basically I'm saying you can do these shits cheap and, and you'll be seeing them pushed out a lot because of these new mutants. And um, th this is all it is. It can be done very cheap and at home. But yeah. All right, so let's uh, let, let's put a nice bow on this thing. 
Uh, okay. So first is, uh, it would seem to me that they are overstepping in terms of that we've reacted as if there's the bubonic plague. We've reacted like there's some massive, horrible thing, which is not to say the corona is not real. It's not to say that I got sick from it. It wasn't fun to get sick from it. But it's not some deadly thing that's killing off half the population. It just isn't. We know that um, we don't quite know how many people have gotten sick, so we don't know the actual death rate. And we know that the death rate is overinflated. And even if the death rate wasn't overinflated, we know that it's borrowing deaths from other places. So this is not the craziest, deadliest thing that's ever happened. Right. Um, B, we didn't get into that much. I think more of what we explored is just the fact, well, no, 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 I guess we, we explored the fact that we know that the PCR is a flawed. And so we know that we're using um, bad data sets. And then we also know the fact that from looking at the Pfizer, Pfizer studies and the FDA, these people are lying to us. So why are we trusting people that are lying to us, particularly if with the absolute best case scenario, if you're a healthy individual, is an absolute risk reduction of, I believe, about 1%. So like, and, and let's just on the note of them lying to us, you got to just rethink of my example of being giving the shot to a 15 year old or an 86 year old, the absolute risk reduction is the most important thing for understanding whether or not this is worthwhile. And they're not presenting it to us in that way. Um, there are potential side effects. That doesn't mean that I can tell you for certain that there will be, I think, uh, in the near future, hopefully we will do another episode, uh, somewhat forecasting what the side effects may be now. I'm not the FDA, so I'm not going to pretend that maybe means that there will be. What they I will tell the you, trial. they stopped the trial, man. What I will tell you is that what they're doing is very shady, uh, and so it seems outrageous to me that you would, uh, with with little upside, decide to take this, and that all of us should be aware of the fact that at a minimum, we're all engaging in something really stupid. Now, that really stupid might be, hey, there are no side effects. By the way. I think there are going to be side effects. I just don't have the evidence yet. So I'm not walking around fear mongering and everyone I know has gotten this thing. So I'm hoping that there aren't. And I will do more research on the side effects. I'll come back to you. I'll tell you guys what I think. But at the moment, it doesn't even matter if there are or aren't. The point is there's nearly no upside to getting this. So why would you, why would you do it? Other than that they're telling you that you have to. So now we're just listening to people when they decide we have to do stupid things, that they're going to take control of our lives, put vaccine passports onto our phones. This thing's a fucking nightmare of stupidity. So, anyways, Stephen, thank. Oh, sorry, and just one more thing, just, just as like a, a feel good too. I think it's really important um, not to necessarily shame people or or, or or to go after people too much because the amount of propaganda is unbelievable. And and I'm sure we all have parents or friends that you know. And I don't even care if anyone here you know got the vax, whatever. But the, the point is, from this point going forward. That's what matters, right? It's about your risk. What is the boosters doing for you and what's going on, right? So so we are all on the same team, um, you know. Yeah. All right. So let's take a couple comments. Um, and, uh, Stephen, if you want to plug Lisa Cryobank. Uh, Cryobanking, yeah. Cryobanking. Yeah. Let people know what you do. Yeah, so if you guys have any yeast, um, if you any brewers out there that want to cryobank your yeast, save it for later. We uh, store both cells, uh, antibodies, yeast, virus, uh, various proteins, and liquid nitrogen for uh, later. All right. Well, here it is. I wipe pill. I live in suburb, 20 minutes from New York City. We're all done with masks for months now and show no sign of going back. All my friends know the score, and they're pretty normal. All right. 
thankfully I live in a more rural part. All right, that's the move. You gotta you gotta go rural. That's what people are saying. Here, we're gonna leave uh, another couple of these, and then we're gonna call it an episode. Let's go. If you got questions, hit me. Hit me now. Hard to say honestly. Mass never really caught on where I live in the middle of nowhere. It's amazing going in the middle of nowhere and it's, people just not giving a shit. Uh, no, it is. It is such a dynamic, right? You, I mean, go to a big city, it's ridiculous. And and I don't know what that says about our society. You guys should talk about that later, but th there's trouble, you know? I mean, I, I'm out in Rochester. I got to say I'm pretty impressed with the uh, lifestyle up here because no one, no one gives a fuck. And it's actually a nice town. Why, do you know Rochester, dude? Um, well, I do know upstate New York. I'm from New Hampshire originally. Uh, shout out to Hanover, New Hampshire. And um, yeah. There you go. Dude. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Um, we're going to do part three, which is going to be on uh, what we think might be coming by way of uh, side effects based off of the animal case studies. Uh, and that's it. All right. Let's going to go one more. One more last comment. Bro, Hollywood, a listener, Robbie the Fires reading my post. There you go. You, you, you put it into the ether that I oh, wanted yeah. me to read your post, and I did. Thank you to our sponsors, Yo Kratom and Yo Delta. And uh, thank you once again for Stephen for coming on, and that's going to be our episode. You guys are awesome. Thanks.